Welcome to Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast powered by Gong. We're your hosts, Devin Reed. And I'm Sheena Badani. Revenue intelligence is a new way of operating based on customer reality instead of opinions, making data-driven decisions based on facts instead of opinions or guesswork. And it's made up of three success pillars, people intelligence, deal intelligence, and market intelligence. You know, the things all revenue teams need and care about. Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals and share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market. You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it. Sheena, I have a confession. It's not really that much of a secret, to be honest. I never went to Harvard Business School. So today's interview felt like my crash course. I was really happy about it. Oh, yeah, kind of. It was it was a bit of an intro to sales and, and what may be taught there. So you're, you're kind of on, on the right track there. Maybe a crash course pending your tone right now was a little bit of an overstatement. <laughs> Maybe it was an uh, introductory touch point to the fellowship that is HBS. Uh, but I enjoyed it all the same. Yeah, to make it a true like business school type of class, there would have to be cold calling. You would have read a case ahead of time. There'd be a lot of preparation. Um, well, there would be some chalkboarding going on, which didn't happen virtually. So there were some things missing, but halfway there. I've done those things in my sales career without the, you know, so maybe yeah. I've kind of had a crash course, uh, just not, not directly. But in all seriousness, we had a fantastic guest. I really liked Frank. He was, he was a funny guy. But you, you and Frank go, I won't say way back, you, you go back. Yeah, we do. He was one of my professors when I was at Harvard Business School, um, specifically teaching marketing and sales in the B2B landscape. So it was nice to catch up with him. And especially since he just wrote uh, a book exactly on that topic of sales management. So we get a bit into that um, in the conversation. If perception versus reality was one human being, it would be Frank. Because he had like, here's what people think, here's the data. And he had like, he was fact checking on the go, like percentages. Uh, he was really impressive. And uh, yeah, he has a new book out, which we which we talk about here. So for anyone in sales management looking to get 1% better, at least this interview will deliver. And if you want uh, to check out the book, we've got the book in the show notes. So you can go grab a copy. Let's do it. Frank, welcome to Reveal. We're super excited to have you here on the show today. It's my pleasure to be here, Sheena. Good to see you again after a few years, and thank you very much for inviting me. Of course. And for those who don't know, Frank was actually one of my professors when I was at HBS, so it's nice to see him, although virtually, uh, after many years, which we will not put a number on. (laughs) (laughs) So just to kick it off, can you tell us a little bit about your work as a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School? What does that entail, and what kind of uh, topics are you specifically focused on these days? Well, I mean, look, my background is not particularly uh, exotic. I um, I joined the HBS uh, Harvard Business School faculty as a marketing professor a number of years ago, and my uh, my research uh, always focused on distribution, sales, other go to market issues. I then left academia and uh, ran a business uh, for uh, ten years. 
And I can tell you that the need to meet payroll monthly uh, only increased my respect for an interest in sales. We then got lucky in the business. I could spin this a different way, but it was dumb luck. We sold at exactly the right time. Uh, Harvard Business School called me back up. How'd you like to come back and teach? I've been doing that for the last eight years. And I can assure you, Sheena, that uh, being a professor at a good university after you've made money is the closest thing to Downton Abbey that this country has to offer. It's a good life. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um but it's not, you know, a slow-paced life. You still are doing new and innovative and fun things. So you recently just published uh, your latest book. So congrats on that. Um, for, for those who don't know, it's called Sales Management That Works, How to Sell in a World That Never Stops Changing. Uh, so why write the book and, and why now? Well, uh, basically, I had um, two motivations in writing this book. The first is... Uh, you know, quite honestly, a professional motivation as someone who's done research in this area for uh, almost 30 years now. Of all the business functions, sales is the most context specific. Selling software is different than selling professional services, is different than selling durables, etc. Selling enterprise software is different than selling software as a service. So it differs by product. It also differs depending upon to whom and where you're selling. Selling in North America is different than selling in Latin America, different than in Asia, the Middle East, etc. But of all the business functions, for some reason, sales is that area where people feel most comfortable making these huge generalizations, usually unsupported by any empirical data or as we say in academia, N equals one. When I worked at Google, when we invested in PayPal, you know, that kind of thing. So basically I wanted to write a book that explains, look, here's what research does and doesn't tell you about this core activity in business. I also think it's a particularly good time uh, for a book like that. There is no doubt that uh, digital, the data revolution that will continue throughout our lifetimes is having an impact on buying and selling. But my reading of what people say about those things is that they systematically misunderstand the managerial implications of what's going on. And I think the pandemic raises the stakes for getting this right. It raises the stakes for ventures, uh, for established companies, and certainly for people who think about marketing and sales as a career. I mean, it, it's still honestly really shocking to me that sales is not consistently taught at any point in one's education, whether it's, uh, you know, even in high school. Honestly, I think folks should learn how to sell because regardless of where you're going to go in life, that's part of it. Definitely in university um, and beyond. Um, so it's, you know, we end up having to uh, rely on just trial by fire and or reading from great minds like yourselves who put out this knowledge in the form of books. Well, I mean, I don't know about the great minds, but you're certainly right about um, about the area. I mean, and, and the data, um, the data tends to shock people. Just, you know, a couple of quick factoids. Um, 
of the over 5,000 colleges and universities in the United States, the last time I looked, which was last year when I wrote this book, less than 200 even had a sales course, let alone a sales program, right? right? So what's the implication of that? This is a line of work where the vast majority of people enter this line of work knowing virtually nothing about what they're going to get paid for. And that leads to the next factoid. Companies already spend 20% more per capita on sales training than they do on any other function. So, you know, there's a huge amount of money that goes into this. So the, the, the orders of magnitude of the issue you just, you just pointed to, Sheena, are, are really there. It's, you know, the data tells you that. So I'm interested, you kind of touched on it just now, Frank, but in the book you say there are many myths, unexamined assumptions, and fads regarding sales. I would love to hear what some of those are. Um, well, let me begin with um, two that I think uh, are particularly timely because I don't know about you, but I literally get three to five emails a week uh, talking about, you know, so-called new normals after the pandemic. And by far, probably the most uh, common one I get is that uh, e-commerce, online media mean the elimination or as we now say in the academic jargon, the disintermediation of the salesperson. And the pandemic has accelerated this and made that a new normal. I think that's a very, very common assertion. Here's the data, all right? If you look at e-commerce as a percentage of total retail sales in the United States in the year 2019, in other words, just before the pandemic, the, the number, the fact, is that it was about 11.5%. Now, Sheena, you may find this interesting. When I ask MBA students, what do you think that number was? I typically get estimates between 30 and 60%. In other words, not a little bit off, orders of magnitude off. Now let's look at what's happening in the pandemic, because we now have this data. It was just uh, released last month. Um, if you look at the second quarter of 2020, and I focus on that because thus far, let's cross our fingers, thus far that was maximum lockdown conditions in the United States. Now, I think obviously, or at least it's obvious to me, that when stores are closed, when capacity is constrained in any store that's open, when people legitimately feel that if they go into a store, they may catch a virus and die, obviously there's going to be more buying and selling online. You don't need a professor from an Ivy League school to tell you that, although some people talk about it as though that's news. But even in the second quarter of 2020, e-commerce as a percentage of total retail sales 16%. In other words, even in those conditions, it went up less than 5%. It was down to 14% by the end of 2020. So that's one of the myths. And it leads, I think, to um, a fact that uh, virtually all these new normal predictions ignore. 
The reality is that social media as a marketing and selling medium, even before the pandemic, but now obviously accelerated by the pandemic, was not a very good marketing medium. It just wasn't. It was a classic example of the law of diminishing returns. It was all, you know, increasingly cluttered, distrusted, not just by consumers, but also by advertisers who saw less ROI and were afraid of having their content put next to objectionable content. And just a factoid, I think, that brings us home, Facebook, good example. The number of ads on Facebook has increased 30% per year since 2016. Yet Facebook ad prices have declined since 2018 and continued to decline through the pandemic. Now, that's not because Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg don't want to raise price. It's because advertisers are seeing less ROI. So again, if you follow that unexamined herd assumption, you're going to do something that's really bad for a business or a venture. You're going to misallocate resources. You're going to get better and better at things that customers value less and less. Social media marketing, I would argue, is a good example of this. And then in any competitive market, you're you're eventually going to fall victim to people who do separate fact from hype. So those are a few that I would suggest, Devin. We have uh, our taglines, you know, opinions versus realities. And, and I think you just gave us a, a lesson in, you know, perception versus reality and kind of the, you know, consumer world. Frank points out that the entire sales process is a black box of assumptions. And when you assume what your buyers want, you may be surprised when a go to market strategy falls short of expectations. Given Frank is a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School, It only felt fitting to take a look at his Harvard Business Review article titled Reinvent Your Sales Process While Still Hitting Your Number, featuring Tiffany Bova, a sales leader at Salesforce. The article reveals that companies only deliver 50 to 60% of the financial performance their forecast promises. This tells me that companies may not be basing their strategies off of actual information and that getting data can help bridge the gap between promised and actual revenue. The article also shares that only 50% of employees understand their company's sales strategy. This is concerning because as companies spend a fortune on sales training, they may be surprised to find out that the investment doesn't add up to the money generated. Data is the key in training your team on real ways to execute the sales cycle and win more critical deals. In the end, the winning companies on top don't just have a winning product, they're also using data to create a winning sales process. If we kind of focus down more and to think of like a B2B sales team or sales, I want to say sales floor, but unfortunately that's a, you know, remote now, how are some of those misconceptions impacting sales leaders today? Right? Like think, you know, like your example was, it seems like almost all of commerce is done online. In fact, that is not at all true. What are some examples that sales leaders might have similar false perceptions and how is that negatively impacting them? Well, let me let me generalize your question a bit, because it it gets at, uh, in many ways, the core thesis of the book and where any responsible sales leader has to start. The most important thing about selling is the buyer, not the seller. Most important thing is the buyer who buys, why and how. 
And that is changing big time because of technology, the data revolution, et cetera. I'm going to get academic for a bit, but uh, bear with me. Um, if you look at most sales models, they basically, and by the way, virtually all CRM systems also fit into this generalization. They basically have the following assumption about buying, that bond follows a sequential linear process. Uh, it's, it, academics call it a hierarchy of effects model, and probably the most common one is moving the prospect from awareness to interest to desire to action, A-I-D-A, AIDA, you know, as in the uh, Verdi opera. But in, this, in the third decade of the 21st century, that's simply not the way people in more and more markets buy. They are online and offline simultaneously throughout their buying journeys. It's, it's not a funnel. It's not a pipeline, which is the rhetoric of 90% sure. of the talk about sales. It's much more complex than that. So the first issue that any sales team needs to deal with is buying as it operates now, not yesterday. Nobody ever made much money in business, you know, just singing about the good old days. When you're a manager, unlike an academic, you get paid to, ma to manage today and tomorrow, not yesterday. Hmm. And that I think there's a, there's many sales models are simply built on obsolete assumptions hmm. about buying and the buyer. So in the book, you also argue that in many businesses, sales is a black box. Like it's a mystery in other teams. Folks have no idea what's going on in this, uh, you know, in those interactions uh, with that's happening with sales. Can you give us an example of how that disconnect may play out, um, you know, particularly in, in B2B selling? Well, B, you know, B2B selling is a, uh, a very big category, and, uh, you know, I'll get back, Sheena, to what I said at the beginning. Sales is very context-specific. Depends on what market you're selling and depends on your um, strategy. But, um, it, you know, in, in my experience, sales in many businesses ha has been a, a black box, but it's changing. I think the best way I can get at this is to uh, give you an anecdote. It's an anecdote I have sat through what I'm about to describe four times as a board member on different companies. Sales leader makes a presentation to the board, whether it's you know early stage or established company, and then the board goes into executive session, and uh, you know people talk, and someone says, "Well, I'm not sure that he or she really understood the question. I don't know that they're really in touch." with the financials in our business. But you know, Charlie makes his numbers every quarter. Let's leave him alone. Uh, that is what I mean by a black box. There are companies, especially many tech companies, where that is the status of sales. And very often, sales is literally invited out of the room when the leaders talk about the business because, you know, they don't want the children to know about their cost structure uh, and, uh, and pricing. But that is changing, and it's changing because of the data revolution. What the data is doing is making sales a more transparent function. 
And in particular, people in finance get that data. For example, in a SaaS business, probably one of the fastest growing job categories is sales operations. Mm -hmm. And if you look at many, many of the people in sales ops, they've never carried a bag, as we used to say. They've never sold. And in fact, their background is in finance and they report up through the finance function. And once finance gets that data, in my experience, two things tend to happen. First, they go, holy mackerel. You know, we did not understand how much money on a fully burdened basis we were actually spending on sales. And then, as you know, finance people are annoying. Once they get data, they start to ask questions (laughs) of the sales leader. Well, how do you allocate this money? Tell me about your cost to serve by different segment. You know, what is your your customer acquisition cost, et cetera? And that has a big implication for sales careers. Among other things, the requirements for financial literacy in sales are increasing dramatically, very, very quickly. And most salespeople can tell you about top-line motion. They can't tell you much about those other elements that ultimately drive enterprise value, but that is changing. The black box is opening. So I have to go back to one point that you made where you see in some companies where sales leaders are actually asked to step out of the room in those board conversations. Do you think that's generally sales leaders, the, you know, the most senior person, the chief of chief of sales or chief of revenue um, has an equal seat at the table today? Oh, empirically, I don't know. I can only tell you about my experience, but, you know, I don't know. You know, this is an audio podcast. People can't see my balding head, but my experience is is not that bad. It's pretty darn extensive. But in my uh, experience, it's very, very company specific. And I think tech firms are a good example. There are some uh, tech firms, LinkedIn, at least before it was um, uh, acquired by Microsoft, was a good example of this. There are some tech firms where you have got to spend some time in sales or business development or whatever you want to call customer acquisition. It's the route to getting a job as a line of business head. But then there are others where it is the, um, uh, the black box. They're primarily about product about engineering. Now, if you're asking me, do you know how do I feel about this? Look, I, I can tell you what um, uh, what the research says, especially in an early stage business. Whether you like it or not, you cannot segregate business development issues from strategy issues, because when sales brings in an account especially in an early stage venture, there's a domino effect throughout the business model of the venture. And you want to manage that proactively. Hmm. You simply don't want to be the uh, passive recipient of what that's doing to your resources. Yeah, that, that was that was very well put. I think in the early days, especially your uh, you know, your first customers and your strategy, that's like one and the same. Like you, you're, you're learning from what's happening at ground zero with your customers, that has to flow to the rest of the organization. If you don't have access to that black box, how can you take your organization forward? Yeah, I agree with that. And I think there's another dimension. 
I, I think, by the way, not just in early stage ventures, but in lo- later stage ventures as well, customer acquisition is intimately connected to organizational learning. You know, we like to use that phrase. It's become a fashionable phrase, and I'm all for it. I think in business, generally being smart is better than being stupid. But at a certain point, we have to get real about this. How do organizations learn? They learn from their customers. They either learn to do what their customers value and they get better at those skills or they don't and they lose those customers. So it's important to be dealing with the right customers. The the second thing uh, to notice here, I think, I'll give you a specific example because it's not just about learning. It's about daily resource allocation in the venture. The, the number I'm about to cite has stayed remarkably consistent throughout my career. Given year, it'll, it'll change maximum about 5%. If you look at, it, at the way salespeople get paid in companies around the world, and you ask yourself, how is incentive comp established? In other words, that variable component that usually depends on um, how much is sold In 70% of the plans, it's basically tied to volume of sales, how much is sold, not the profitability of the sale, not the cost to serve or anything else, simply the volume of sales. Now, notice what the message is to salespeople in a plan like that. The message is basically there is no such thing as a bad customer go forth and multiply. And that's what they do. They understand how they're paid. And what they do is bring in, you know, if you want diversity, you're going to get diversity in customers. Fragments product, fragments customer success. Very soon, it really doesn't matter what the founders and investors think their strategy is. The real strategy, the de facto strategy is being established by those, the aggregate of those customer acquisition efforts in the field. And by the way, that scales up. The problem simply scales up as the company gets bigger. Yeah, I can say from experience, uh, my sales experience, that I've worked at one company that looked at something other than just volume of sales. And that was because there was like a, it was a marketplace sale. It was kind of different than your typical B2B. So they had to look at actuals versus projected. And this was like in the ticketing uh, realm. Um, do you have any, I feel like I have to say data or an opinion, Frank, on a way that teams or sales leaders can combat that, right? Like is, if it's not just volume of sales, is there something else that they can comp sales teams on or maybe even like a secondary metric uh, that should be a part of the equation? Yeah. Well, I mean, again, let's start with what it is that we need to measure. Then I think the whole purpose of sales comp is to do your best to provide incentives that encourage behaviors in line with those metrics. And here the big issue, and uh, by the way, increasingly technology is the seller's friend when, when it's used appropriately this way. But here the big issue is understanding the customer conversion dynamics in your business, in your sales model today, not yesterday. And by that, I mean, what are the cause and effect links in our customer acquisition process? What drives what? 
And in my experience, when, um, when companies do this, when they do a good job uh, of looking at this, there are typically two key areas that immediately cry out for improvement. And as a result, either differences in metrics or deployment or incentives. The first of them is the amount of time that your salespeople are actually spending in customer content, hmm. right? Uh, now, the, again, the, the data I'm going to cite obviously varies by company and by industry. But in the aggregate, if you look at how much time a salesperson spends in customer contact, and by the way, by customer contact, I don't simply mean making a pitch, either in person or virtually. I mean all customer contact, emails, hmm. web, demos, etc. But up in the aggregate, the percentage of customer contact time per rep is a little bit more than 30%, right? Now think about that. Think about the impact in most businesses if you can make that 35%, yeah. 40, 45. It is not only a huge productivity gain, but in most businesses, again, especially early stage businesses, you're increasing your total addressable market, usually significantly, because segments that were uneconomic to sell to now become economic if we can get that 10 to 15% gain. And then the other area, and this gets us back to why the most important thing about selling is the buyer, the, the other area that um, these metrics um, are important for is managing online, offline interactions. You know, and a SaaS business is a good example. You know, it's what they call uh, the attribution issue. Mm. And usually what happens in those businesses is the sale is attributed to, quote, the last click, whatever that happens to be, the right. email right. campaign, whatever. When the reality is that purchase was more often motivated by some combination of activities in marketing as well as sales throughout the buying journey. And in the third decade of the 21st century, you can't leave that to chance because that is how the majority of buying journeys happen. And you want to put in metrics that provide an incentive not only to stay on top of that, but to try to manage that as optimally as possible. Let's shift gears a bit, Frank. So, um, you know, we've been talking about the, the importance of the buyer and the customer and putting that first. Another important step in all of this is hiring and who you hire on the team. And in the book, you write hire for the task, not the title. Can you tell us a little bit more by about what you mean by that and why hiring for the task is a better approach? Yeah. Um, look, there are inherent challenges in sales hiring that simply do not exist uh, to the same extent in other functions. And, and you know, it gets back uh, to something you asked me earlier about, um, you know, the lack of education in this area, et cetera. But if, you, if you're a, uh, a venture seeking to hire an engineer, you can go to an engineering school. And it's a little bit like walking into a buffet. What are you interested in? Electrical engineering, chemical engineering, mechanical engineering? You know, would you like it with ice cream? Because they all now minor in environmental engineering. 
if you're looking to hire someone in finance or accounting, you can find people who majored in those subjects. The same is true uh, for uh, coders, programmers, but it's not true in sales. And yet, one other factoid to keep in mind gives you a sense of the magnitude of the issue. 50%, the estimate is that 50% of college graduates in the United States, no matter what their majors were, you know, whether it was business administration or art history, about 50% will wind up working in sales or business development, whatever you want to call it, at some point in their career. And that percentage is increasing as we become even more and more a service-dominated economy. So there are inherent challenges here, but many, many companies, including many early-stage companies who, you know, sort of go through this rhetoric about cultural fit, um, many companies make a tough task even harder. The next thing I'm about to say is as close to an established fact as anything you will ever hear from a management professor, all right? Because it's backed up by over 60 years of consistent results in the research. And I want to emphasize consistent. The correlations between the evaluations people get during their interviews and their actual on-the-job performance tend to vary from about 0.1 to 0.4. In other words, even in the best of cases, it's less than the 0.5 rate of flipping a coin. And yet, that's how most salespeople get hired, on the basis of one or two unstructured uh, interviews. All of that is behind what I mean by hire for the task. Sales is the ultimate performance art in business. It's about behavior. It's not about how well you or I smiled during the interview. It's not simply about attitude and, gee, am I going to be a good cultural fit, as they like to say, for this job. It is about actual behavior. And the behaviors that are important versus not so important are a function of those sales tasks. And that's, that's what I mean by hire for the task, uh, not, uh, not the title. And I also want to point out one other thing here, because, um, you know, especially in your part of the world, in the tech world, uh, I see a lot of what I consider vacuous and dangerous platitudes that uh, sort of cover for being, you know, what I would consider a good business person. When you look at what people say they're looking for in a sales hire, basically they're looking for Renaissance men and women. Now, look, my attitude is whenever you can hire Michelangelo or Leonardo da Vinci, do it. (laughs) You're going to get good stuff there. But there are a few da Vinci's and Michelangelo's out there and your deployment practices, the way you organize the sales force, The sales model you use for different segments determine the tasks. Not everybody has to be Michelangelo or da Vinci, but a lot of that rhetoric obfuscates what it is that managers can do to make better hiring decisions. Do you have any recommendations for leaders of sales teams who are trying to make this next set of hires on how they can 
define those characteristics, be more specific on the tasks that need to be completed? Is it kind of, you know, looking at who's done well internally? Is it looking at other, you know, great examples in the inside or outside of their space? Is it something else? Well, I mean, a couple of things. One is um, when it comes to the uh, hiring process, simply don't rely solely on interviews. Now, I've got colleagues at Harvard who, you know, know about this research and hiring, and they actually recommend that companies don't interview. My own feeling is only somebody who's never run a business can actually say that seriously. Of course you interview. People hire people, especially in sales. People have to work with people, but you don't, you don't make the interviews just by the sales manager. A good idea that I see many companies do, especially in tech, let's get the customer success people involved in the hiring process because they have to deal with the outcome of what the salespeople do. Get product involved because, as you said earlier, it's very often part of a customer discovery process that is going to affect the uh, trajectory. So that's comment number one. Comment number two is, again, it's about behaviors, And, you know, if you think you can peer into somebody's soul and predict their behaviors, even through the best interview process, 60 plus years of data says you're mistaken. So whenever possible, and by the way, the pandemic is increasing these possibilities, whenever possible, you want to put in place internship type scenarios Uh, uh, scenarios where you can actually observe the behavior. So that's, you know, that, that's um, uh, uh, number two. And then number three is, you know, always remember that you're hiring for what it is that you want this person to do in the buying process today and how it's likely to evolve. So you're also making a bet on somebody's capabilities going forward, but it's not good enough to do what a lot of entrepreneurs do, right? Because basically you talk to them, you say, well, how do you make that judgment? And they say, well, flexibility. Well, you know, geez, I, I guess that's true, but can we be a little more specific about it? And that I think is what competitive markets require of companies to do here. So th- those would be my three uh, major uh, messages about what is again an inherent challenge, but don't make it even tougher. You know that old saying, "Life is tough." It's even tougher when you're stupid. A lot of that <laughs> happens in sales hiring. I hadn't heard that one, but I will be stealing that amongst many things you've said today. And I really like what you mentioned about adding CS and other, you know, supporting roles. We'll call them into the interview process. I'd never heard of that. And going even further back, you put data to a phrase I hear all the time, and I'm sure you have too, which is, you know, and Sheena, we've asked many sales leaders, you know, how did you get into sales? Number one answer, I kind of fell into it. Right. And that's what you said, 50% of, I believe you said 50% or so of, you know, college grads did not go to school to be in business, but, and, you know, find their way there. And I'm kind of generalizing that statement, but I find that really interesting. Uh, Frank, I went to school to be an English teacher, ended up in SaaS sales not far not far after, so can, can say that's true from my own experience. Um, Frank, I like everything you're saying, and I have a feeling I'm really going to like your last answer here because we like to wrap up every interview with the same question, which is, how would you describe sales in one word? 
performance. Uh, sales is, uh, you know, in many ways, it's the most meritocratic activity in business. Uh, and by that, by meritocracy, I mean, um, especially in the times we're living in right now, much more open to gender, race, ethnic differences. And one of the reasons is because whether they're right or wrong, there are metrics, right? You know, look, if she can sell, let her sell. Right. You know, I don't care uh, how you feel about that. So I think it's about performance. And, you know, my one uh, final bit of advice uh, to companies about how do you get better at this single most actionable thing you can do in the short term, make sure your people take performance reviews seriously. It's vital. And by the way, it's not metaphysics. It is a trainable process. I waited five years in the company I ran to get people good training about that. That was five years too long. So it's about the one word is performance and that has implications for performance management. It's more than a word. <laughs> That's fine. Well, the one I was, ex as expected, I didn't know what the word you would pick, but I had a feeling you would have zero hesitation because a lot of people think <laughs> yeah. about it for a long time. And, and Frank, you, you had the answer like ready to go, which is the one question not in our prep notes. So I always appreciate that. Um, thank you for your time, Frank. I'm really excited to get my hands on this book. Again, for listeners, you can check it out in the show notes. It is Sales Management That Works, How to Sell in a World That Never Stops Changing. Thank you so much for your time again, Frank. Really appreciate it. Devin, Sheena, Gong, thank you very much. Thank you. Every week, we bring you a micro action, something you can think about or something you can put into play today. Companies are constantly evolving their sales and go-to-market strategies. For today's micro action, think about some successful strategies that have worked for you and your company then take a look at the data that supports why it was a success. Then think about where you're focused on today and see if you have data to track if it's working or not. If it's working, can it be improved to generate more revenue and happy customers? And if it's not working as planned, perhaps the data can start to show you some insights or trends to understand why and where you should course correct. That's it for this week. See you next time on Reveal. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday. And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there. And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then. And if you have any feedback or you want us to interview one of your favorite revenue leaders, just email us at reveal at gong.io.